This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week is a real treat for us. Uh, we've had many uh, fantastically interesting and influential people on our podcast, and today we have one of the most interesting people, I think, in our world today. Uh, this is uh, former Congressman Will Hurd. Will is a former CIA officer, cybersecurity executive, and an elected member of Congress from the 23rd Congressional District in Texas, a region that stretches, uh, believe it or not, all the way from San Antonio to El Paso along the U.S.-Mexican border. He represented uh, that district for six years, from 2015 to 2021. And in addition to all of those achievements, uh, Congressman Hurd has written a brand new book uh, that I highly recommend to everyone, uh, American Reboot, An Idealist's Guide to Getting Big Things Done. Congressman Hurd, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on. I appreciate you having me. We're delighted to have you. Um, before we turn to our discussion uh, with Congressman Hurd about his book and his insights into our democracy today, we have, of course, as always, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Aren't we hollow enough? Let's hear it. You sat there on a heap of dust. To you, it was a pile of your greatest treasures, the words you had found, hollow enough to be tall and imposing. You sat there, facing north by northwest, chased down by a crop duster in Iowa. I held your hand because, at the very least, it matters how we choose to treat our enemies. You sat there on a heap of your own dust. It wants to blow away. It is blowing away because even the highest words are light and blow away. You sat there waiting for an answer. I think you expected it to come from me, but I just held you in my arms like an infant. You were discovering your own hands and eyes and ears. You sat there on that heap of dust. For you, it was a mark of all the things you held against me, all the knives you held carelessly to my throat, and yet you sat, at last, above it, on top of it all. You asked me to tell you what you had missed, what you had lost, whom you had left behind, and I asked you, haven't you forgotten to be human? I love I love that poem, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is about the dehumanization of politics in our country, the ways in which technology and, and, and new forms of entertainment and news are, are separating us from what we perceive as our political enemies, uh, people who, who on the surface seem to disagree with us and be opposed to us on everything, but really have so much more in common with us. Amen, amen to that, brother. Um, I, I, I agree with that. That was awesome. Appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, uh, Congressman Hurd, I think that's a perfect segue into your book. Uh, why did you write this book? And tell us about the the idealism that shines through in your analysis in, in this book. Well, I, I appreciate that. And please call me, call me Will. Um, it was, look, my dad always taught me to have a PMA, a positive mental attitude. And what was, what was great, you know, my parents met in California, moved to South Texas, to San Antonio in 1970, 1970, 
Um, and oh, moved in 1971. They had gotten married in 1970. And even at that time in South Texas, um, you know, my parents couldn't buy any house they wanted to because they didn't want to sell to a, to a, 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 a interracial couple. My dad's black, my mom's white. They, my dad couldn't, you know, stay at every hotel in some of the places that he crisscrossed some of those places in the district that I ultimately represented. And, it, and it's fascinating that, you know, a, a couple of decades later, that area is represented by their son. Right. And so, so look, we, we've had historically a lot of problems in America, uh, but it's also provided an opportunity for, for so many people to, um, to to have an impact not just on our communities but but the world and and you know I've I've benefited from that I've 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 enjoyed and, and been excited to serve my country I've seen the role America plays in the rest of the world and um, you know like like in 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 Zachary's poem the reality is is what I saw when I crisscross these twenty nine you know my district was twenty nine counties two time zones my gosh one hundred twenty five miles of the border. Um, took 10 and a half hours to drive across it, right? At 80 miles an hour, which was, which was literally the speed limit in most of the district. And the thing that I learned, whether I was in the Colonias outside of El Paso or in the Dominion of San Antonio, which is one of the more wealthier areas of town, um, people talked about the same things, right? And and I learned I learned that actually way more unites us than divides us. And for me, we've gotten away from that. We've gotten away from our values. And I thought I could, you know, I wanted to write a book about some of these major challenges that we're having to deal with. I call them generational defining challenges. And, you know, help the reader learn, you know, why did I come to some of the conclusions and and and, and I do that by telling stories, right? Uh, that that led to me coming to my my conclusions, and so uh, that was the point. And and for me, it's you know, it's this is a part memoir, part guide, and you know, I, I it's called an idealist guide to getting big things done because we're at a moment in time, a political moment, a international moment, a cultural moment where it's impossible to get big things done, and it doesn't have to be that way. And and so. Um, I wanted. I was fortunate to be able to, to put this out there. What would you say to those who would say that 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 it really is impossible to get big things done in our political world today? What are some big things that you think uh, idealists and 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 people like yourself have been able to accomplish? Sure. Uh, look, it's it's a, that's a great question, Zachary. And 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 when you look at when when you look at some of the major. Let's, let's start with the legislation. When we think of the major piece of legislation that's ever been passed, it's always been in a divided government, meaning um, there was one party in control of, of, the, of the legislative branch or part of the legislative branch and a different party in Congress. So that's everything from the Civil Rights Act to the Clean Water Act to the Every Student Succeeds Act to the First Step Act. You, know, you, you go through all these and, and that's been the case. There's this notion that the only way to get things done is if one party controls everything. And that's just not, that's just not, that's not, that's actually not a way to be, to be successful in our history um, doesn't, doesn't show that. And so for, for me, um, you know, the, the big things that we need to get done is we need to be prepared to address technology that's moving at a pace that is unprecedented. 
Um, we have to deal with a interconnected world. Yes, my my man George Washington said, you know, watch out for 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 in, entangling alliances, right? Uh, but the world's changed a lot since 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 George Washington was at was at the at the helm, and and we're seeing that now play out in places like Ukraine, and it shows that uh, when we work together, we can actually um, uh, uh, protect ourselves against against you know evil people uh, like Vladimir like Vladimir Putin, and so so though uh, look. Um, I, uh, you know, when I look at things that we were able to be successful of, like my last piece of legislation I got signed into law was a national strategy to deal with artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is a complicated issue. It had in, in, in government speak, multi-jurisdictional issues. So like seven committees had to look at that. That meant seven, um, committee chairs that had an opinion and the fact that we were able to get something um, like that done. The Every Student Succeeds Act, you know, was delivered uh, under President Obama uh, by a Republican House, right? You know, nobody would would have have expected that. And so, so for me, I, I think there are some examples. Um, nobody ever clicks on an article that says Congress worked, right? <laughs> and and so there, there's more examples than than folks would probably realize. I think that's really instructive, uh, and I do think that during the Cold War, a period you know well from your training and your uh, activities that you described to some extent in the book with the Central Intelligence Agency, during the Cold War, we had a lot of bipartisanship on many foreign policy issues as well as domestic policy issues, investments in financial aid for students that certainly helped put me through college, probably helped put you through college, Will, as well. So we can do this. What stands in the way right now? Why do, why do our politics seem so unidealistic, so ugly, quite frankly. It, it's driven, it, it's, it's a structural issue. And, and the structural issue, it, it goes down to our primary system, right? Now, look, I, I am fine with having two parties. I think a competition of ideas matters. And, and for me, the, the, I wrote the book, you know, yeah, I'm a Republican, um, but I didn't write the, the book for just Republicans. I wrote it for Democrats. I wrote it for independents. I wrote it for people that don't vote um, because these things matter. And, and at the end of the day, both the, the political spectrum is no longer a line. It's a horseshoe. And the edges of the, that horseshoe are closer to one another than to the center. And, and what happens is in our primaries, um, you, you have in, in the House – this is a hard number. 92% of the seats in the House were decided in a primary. Only 33 seats last election were, in essence, toss-ups um, where any party could have won. And so the rest of them were decided in a primary. And the average number of people, so so the most the clearest numbers are back in the last non-presidential election in 2018, where only 54,000 people on average voted in a contested primary. Wow. That's not a lot of people. Right. When you take into the general election in that in, in 2018, it was about 267,000 people. Very big difference. And so when you're only when you only when you're the only election that matters is the primary, you only talk to the people that are most likely to vote. And those are the most partisan people in a district. And sometimes it comes out to only 2% of that population um, are the people that decide an election. So guess what? 
officials and elected officials only talk to them. So this this trend is true in the House of Representatives. It's true in state rep races. It's true in state Senate races. It's true in city council races, right? And now there's a whole whole. Uh, uh, and I, I go deep into some of the some of the math yes. yep. in in the book, and and for for me now the way you fix it, if I had a magic wand, the way you fix it is that you don't have any district more than plus six in either direction. Meaning you don't have a district that's more than fifty six percent Republican or fifty six percent Democrat. Plus six means that, in my opinion, it's a jump ball and anybody can win in that seat. And so the, that would force, um, you, would, you have to appeal to a broader group of people rather than the most partisan folks, right? So that, that would be if I had a magic wand. Now, I don't have a magic wand and trying to get all 50 states to do that you know, anytime soon is going to be difficult. So what's the other option? The other option is get more people to vote in primaries mm-hmm. is, 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 the simple, is a simple fact. And so, so that's something that voting is not the pinnacle of civic engagement. It's the floor, and more people need to be doing that in primaries. So it, this gets at two really important issues that you discuss and that I encourage people to, to read in your book, uh, the issues surrounding gerrymandering and voting rights. Um, so just to be clear then, you're advocating for limits on gerrymandering and you're advocating for more voting rights, not fewer voting rights, correct? For sure. The more people to vote, the better. Right. Like, why are we why can I not someone not register online to 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 vote? You know, if if we're able to pay your property taxes or register your car, you know, there's so many things you can do now um, online. You should be able to do that. Heck, I I would even be supportive of, of voting online. And if Estonia can do it, right. when Estonia is worried about, not only are they worried about the physical threat of the Russians trying to invade them, they're also <laughs> constantly being bombarded by the Russians. That's their neighbors. And the Russians basically in, in 2004 um, brought the entire country to its knees for, for a number of days. And so if they can do that under that level of threat, um, the most sophisticated country in the world should be, should be, able, should be able to do that. And, and so, yeah, so increase, make it easier, more people voting, uh, the better off we're going to be. And, and look, at, at some point, right, you know, the, the, the phrase gerrymandering, like we, we have to agree on what principle should be designed to, it should be the overarching principle design these districts, right? And right now, you know, the, the logic is it's neighborhoods or a geographic, squ- you know, a, 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 some kind of you know, uh, a, a geo- geometric object that we can identify. Well, you know, I, I think it should be based on making the seats more competitive. Uh, that sounds so uh, powerful to me. And I have to say, one of the things I admire about your book is you speak very frankly about issues like this, immigration, many other issues, and, and your positions don't line up certainly with the Republican Party in all cases, nor do they line up with the Democratic Party. I mean, you're making <laughs> you're, you're, you're making what seemed to me to be very sensible, if we might even say this, moderate centrist arguments. Uh, why is it so hard to convince, let's start with your party, why is it so hard to convince Republicans in Texas, for example, to adopt what you just suggested, which seems so overwhelmingly compelling? So, so I would say when it comes to redistricting and, and voting rights and those, thing, those issues, it's more about incumbent protection because I can make the same arguments about the problems in Texas. I can make those same arguments in a place like Illinois. 
um, by the same place in like New York State, right? Um, and, and you might have better perspective on some of the changes that happened in California. Has that allowed, um, has that made um, districts, you know, they, they have the, you know, um, open primaries and the top two go, go to the primary. I don't know, uh, you know, what the analysis of has that made things better? Um, I, I would say the, the one thing that I think continues to allow Texas to grow, have great economic strength and having people from all over the country still move here is, is we, it's, it's, we have one party rule at the state level, but there is still m- most of the major cities are are run by the by by Democrats. So you have a Republican statewide, you have Democratic uh, local officials, and so there is a a a a a, a competition, right? There is a multi party system at play here. Um, it's just at different levels. Um, I don't think you necessarily have that in a place like California. And so, you know, one of the questions is why are so many people leaving California? Um, and again, I, I don't know. I don't know the answers to that. So what, your question was, why is it hard to get some people in Texas to agree with this? Because they want to keep their jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. They, you know, you know, people in power want to stay in power and they don't want to make it easier for someone to 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 get to get thrown out. Right. And and I used to always tell I used to always tell my colleagues or people running or, or new folks in, in Congress, be like, don't be afraid of your constituents. Right. And, and it's oftentimes that is it's, it's always wild. You know, I, I, I set records for the number of town halls that were that were held. It was funny. One year, um, Democrats were hounding Republicans for not doing town halls. And there was this uh, a Democratic political group that was keeping track. And they always got so pissed because I was at the top of their list <laughs> of, the most, of the most town halls by like a mile. Right. And and so don't be afraid of your constituents. And, and I was lucky that I'm glad I represented the 50 50 district because no matter what I did, half the district was upset with me. But that caused me to explain to people what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And and so I, I think it's really comes down to something that basic. At, at the at the at the end of the day, a lot of these folks are lazy, and they don't want to put the level of work and effort in that's required um, to um, to have that connection with the district. Congressman, if I may, I'd like to respectfully uh, challenge you a little bit on this issue, just because uh, as someone who will be voting in twenty twenty two, I find it a little hard to understand how our state can just be one of many protecting incumbents when, for example, my sister who goes to college in the state of Wisconsin uh, has to register months in advance to vote by mail, Doesn't never got her ballot for the primary, and if she lived in Wisconsin, she could register day of. And I'm not allowed to vote in the primary for the election that I'm going to be voting in in November. So I'm just wondering uh, how those reflect those same trends you've talked about when, to me, the fact that I live currently in a district that stretches all the way from Austin to Houston and is represented by a Republican despite my community being almost entirely Democrat, I find that hard to stomach if if that's okay. Sure, no, look, it's okay. I, look, I appreciate I appreciate the, the 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 sentiment, right? But you don't live in an area that has seven hundred thousand people that are just like you. Right. Like at, at the end of the day, you have to, you know, you, you, the, the, the way our system is designed is to have 435 people 
representing the entire country. And so the first organizing principle is based on um, divide the population. That's why we have a, a, a census every 10 years and divide that by 435. And that's how many people uh, somebody represents. And so it was, you know, in the house, the people's house was designed to be the entity most responsive to the people. And so that's why you reset it every every decade. And so, so yeah, why your community, your neighborhood, your street, all that may be more aligned, but, um, you know, where are, you know, look, so, so should one person uh, represent Austin? Okay, like that, that's one way to do it. But I still don't, if, if that were to happen, I would still say I would rather have, a district that wasn't overwhelming in one way or another, because guess what? If that, if all of Austin, and let's say I, I don't know the numbers of what Austin is, uh, let, let me use, let me use a better example that I know. Here in San Antonio, there's five members that represent San Antonio. One district is heavily Republican. One di- another district is heavily Democrat. The Republican never has to talk to Democrats, and the Democrat never has to talk to Republicans. So guess what? You think those folks are working towards trying to solve real problems for everybody, even when they may not agree with each other 100% of the time? Absolutely not. But when you had the two other districts that were more competitive, we were the ones that were constantly trying to work together to solve real problems. So um, so, so for me, um, that's, the, that's the overriding, overriding principle. And, and look, if you don't like the, the person that's representing you, right, um, you know that's where uh, if only if only sixty thousand people are going to likely vote in in that primary, there's a lot you can do to try to overthrow that person. And I certainly think you're right, uh, Will. That uh, competitive districts like the one you represented do tend to produce uh, representatives like yourself who have to work across party lines because you you're always concerned about appealing to people on the other side. You have to. Uh, when they when they go out to vote uh, on that issue, I wanted to to move us to another topic that you speak uh, very thoughtfully and compellingly about in the book. Uh, that's the protection of our democracy, and mm-hmm. and you and you, I think, very courageously um, separate yourself from some of the Trump movement, uh, and you talk very, I think, forthrightly about the the uh, horrible events of January sixth, twenty twenty one, the insurrection at the Capitol. And President Trump's role, at least in uh, encouraging some of that behavior, um, what do you think we should do now as a democracy to respond? Many many of our listeners uh, are concerned about the future um, security of our democracy at home, not just abroad with regard to Vladimir Putin, but also at home. Uh, what what do you think we should be doing as a society that we're not doing right now? Well, it starts with look. So, so I've been clear about my opinions on what happened at January six, and 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 what is what is shocking to me is I think about all the twenty two, twenty three year old kids that were on their third or fourth day at work, and they were hiding in the closet or under their desk, worried that someone's going to drag them and beat them and, and beat them to a bloody pulp. Some were my students. Some were my students. Yeah, look, look, I, I, I get it. I, I had some staffers that are still having to deal with that, right now. Now, the, the problem with all of this is that, you know, it, you cannot legitimize the use of political violence, right? And, and what, what, what undergirded all of this? And what undergirded ultimately was a number of elected officials lying to the electorate over time to foment, um, to, to, to foment fear, 
right? In order to 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 gain gain clicks, to get more views of their news segments, all of that. Right? And you include you include former President Trump in that category. Oh, of course, yeah. Look, he, he he incited he incited the crowd, and 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 there was lies there was lies you know for for a number of years, right? Um, but the the, the the other problem is there has been a lack of trust in all of our institutions to be a and, and when I say institutions, I'm talking not just federal government, it's it's state governments, local government, it's academia, it's the media, it's the scientific community. Um, one of the few in, one of the few industries that still have any kind of trust, from the electorate is some businesses. And part of it is because they have to deliver a good or service. And if not, people walk away. Right. And, and so, so for me, it's this, this erosion of trust in these institutions. And it starts with people in all these institutions lacking ideological consistency. And so when, when the media is being perceived as bias in either direction, right. When um, they, they talk about one thing versus the other, when look, one of the things I always like, look, I'm critical of my own party because it's, 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 it's my party, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to be critical with the people that I know the best. Right. Um, And so, so this is one of those things that we, that, that this, this lack of trust and institutions up and down, and the only way you rep- repair trust, right, is to is to improve people's faith in what you're doing, and you improve people's faith faith by showing up and by being consistent when when a situation benefits you or potentially won't benefit you, and so so and the only way you can you can repair that is, is over time. But we've also have forgotten about some of these underlying issues that make democracy work. Everybody assumes. Of course, democracy is going to stay around, right? Democracy is a fait accompli. Why is it called an American experiment? And you know this probably better than most and probably teach this. We were called an experiment because when we were started, nobody, there was no other democracy around. There had been examples in history, but at the time it was. And like in, in the research for this book, I found out that the next democracy wasn't until 60 years later, and it was Switzerland. And there's only 14 democracies that are over 100 years old. Most people assume that this is, of course, this is what the case, right? Most people assume America is going to be a superpower because through all of there's nobody is living today who has seen a, a world where America wasn't the, the, the superpower. And, 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 and that is, we, we got to articulate why these things matter. And we got to bring it home to people. We got to bring home that it's majority rules with minority rights, right? The majority is not supposed to be allowed to have an authoritarian government. You have separation of powers. If you truly believe about a federated system that has local control, then you can't try to usurp power at, at the local level, right? And so, so I, and, and I'm going on a little long and I apologize. No, 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 this is helpful. But, but, but to me, I, you know, I remember having, I, 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 I tell this, I tell some CIA stories in, in the <laughs> book and I, and I go into a story of how I ended up in the CIA and it started because I added international studies as a minor. And the first class I took in international studies, the first lesson was on the rule of law. And I'm like, like 18 year old me is like the rule of law. 
Of course, there's rule of law. This is a dumb class. Like, this is what I'm learning. You know, I, I was an engineering major, and I'm like, this is this is what liberal arts majors are talking about. Rule of law. Of course, there's rule. Of law. Like, I thought, it, like to me, it was so like it was seemed so basic until I lived in a place that didn't have rule of law, and I realized how important rule of law was. Right. And so, so we have to we have to uh, articulate why these things matter, um, and we got to do a better job for those of us that that care and know about this stuff. Well, and it seems to me, and and I found this very compelling in your book, Will. It seems to me that we also have to be willing to talk truth to power. Sometimes we have to act with integrity. We have to be honest. Right? People don't trust many of the organizations you identified because they don't think the people running them are honest. They think the people running them are only out for themselves and and self-interest has always been there. But it does strike me that in in line with rule of law, there has been a sense for a long time that uh, serving, especially in the public, is is a job of public trust. No one has a right to it. And Mm -hmm. um, one should hold oneself and hold one's colleagues to the highest levels of, of honesty. Uh, I think Senator Mitt Romney said this uh, during the discussions about the certification of the election, right? People will trust the election if you tell them the truth. Stop telling them lies. Uh, how can we get officials uh, elected to office uh, who will continue to tell the truth? How can we encourage our parties, your party and the other party, to be more attentive to the truth? Look, it's, it's, the electorate has to demand it. Right. And and it goes back to this notion that when you look at the people that actually vote in general elections, but don't vote in primaries, those are the ones that are looking for those things. Right. The, the people that are worried about putting food on their table, a roof over their head and, ta- and making sure that people they love are healthy, happy and safe. You know, they're not following politics like sporting events. Right. And and so it, it also requires for those to that that um, care about these things, are they rewarding the behavior they want to see? And and I always tell folks, it's like, okay, um, have you? Yes, yeah, start with your local area, right? Do you know some of your local officials, and is there somebody that you like and get behind and help that person? Whether it's knock doors, write a check phone bank for them, right? Like there's so many ways to get involved. And that seems, you know, look, it's hard, right? Winning elections is hard. And so, and, and, but then you don't have to just do it in your community. You, are you sharing stuff on social media that when people, and it may not be from your tribe, are you sharing that to be like, Hey, that was a good comment. I agree with that. Right. Again, we got to reward the behavior that we want to see. Um, I always joke and say my social media presence would be 10x what it is now if I said crazy things. Right. But I don't say I don't say crazy. I'm not going to say crazy things. And so so look, I, I wish there I wish I had, you know, an eight point plan to be like, this is how we get people that are a little bit more truthful. But here's what here's what I found when Pete like uh, elected officials are best in the world at one thing, and that's following a trend. And so nobody wants to be first, nobody wants to be second, but people are going to fight each other to be third and fourth. And so if, if if some people win this way, right, by being honest and get rewarded, then you're going to start seeing other people um, being that same way. And it starts with people holding their own folks accountable, right? And it's easy to cast stones at the other side 
but are you willing to hold the people that you like and that wear your same jersey? Are you willing to hold them accountable? And and I think that's where a lot of this stuff starts. I think that's very well said. And again, you make this point in the book, uh, which I hope everyone will read. Um, it's our job as citizens to hold people accountable to the principles and ideals we believe in, even if they're doing things that benefit us. If they're not living to those principles and ideals, they shouldn't be representing us. I think that's your message, Will, right? It, it, look, it, it 100% is. And, and, and what's, what's fascinating, I remember early on when I first ran in, in 2009, the, the election that I lost in a runoff by a very small amount. Um, my best friend was my, we called him a deputy campaign manager because he was in essence, the campaign manager, but I couldn't be a first time candidate and nobody thought I had a chance with a campaign manager that had zero experience in politics. <laughs> so we called him the deputy campaign manager to like a, act like, okay, there's probably another camp. There's probably a campaign <laughs> manager who's a, who's a professional. Right. And, and, and we were, we were debating something. I forget what it is now. And I was like, what should I say? And he got, and he yelled at me. And he goes, Will, what do you believe? Start with that. Start with what you believe, and then you can work from there. And so for me, you know, I've always tried to be clear on what is the value that I believe in and how does that affect my actions. And 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 look, I, I was fortunate to have to make and think through so many random things. Every look, I, the, the, this is a silly story, but like one of the debates in my office was there was a bill about whether to make it illegal to eat cats or dogs. Hmm. And I'm like, it's definitely weird to eat cats and dogs, but should it be illegal, right? And what principle is are you basing that off on? Now, what we found out was it was already illegal to eat cats and dogs and that this was somebody just stamping their foot to be like, hey, this is, you know, pandering to, to, to people in their district. But it always goes back to what is the value and then are you able to articulate your decision, your behavior off of that? And are you willing to do those things uh, and when it's hard? I, I, when, I'm in, when I'm at high schools and middle schools, I talk to kids about being a person of character. Yes. And I say being a person of character is it takes practice just like being a musician or, or playing a sport or being a scientist or an engineer. And the more practice you get, the better you get at it. And the, the older you get, the consequences of being a person of character are greater, right? Like th there are times when you do the right thing and there's negative consequences. But the more you learn how to do the right thing, the easier it becomes also. And so, um, you know, I've been in situations I was lucky early in my you know, early in my adult life to have to make tough decisions that ended up, you know, that were truly life or death. And so to me, that was an experience that made me realize, do the right thing, um, you know, even if it's not popular, because you can always hold your head up. And, and I can be proud uh, when I go home or in my community to say, hey, I did what I thought was right. Yep. Yep. I, I think that's such an eloquent statement of a, a central point for our podcast week after week, which is that democracy does depend upon the content of our character as a people, and that our leaders should be, in, in Abraham Lincoln's words, uh, bringing out the better angels in our nature, not encouraging the worse behaviors. Um, Zachary, I, I know you care deeply about these issues that, that Will has talked about on the podcast now and that are in his book. Um, how do you see idealism for your generation coming out? I think that's a good place for us to, to close. What, what, how does this speak to you? Because I think Will's audience is really young people. It's not people that are his age and my age. We're about the same age. It's actually 
younger people that he's that he's writing for. So, so I think my generation sort of is definitely dissatisfied with the status quo of our politics, and I don't necessarily think it's because of the extreme nature of our politics. I think it's because we can't seem to get anything done. And so I think the new idealism, I hope that the new idealism of my generation will be a new kind of pragmatism and a new emphasis on actually doing things that impact people's lives and and make a difference. And those could fall anywhere on the political spectrum. I think we need to focus on our values, as Congressman Hurd said, and I think that that we will. I think that the crazy events of the past few years have, if anything, forced us to to reevaluate what's important. Uh, will, I want to give you the last word. Well, well look, Zachary, look, I, you're, this music to my ears, right? Because I call my philosophy pragmatic idealism, right? How mm-hmm. do you help the greatest number of people possible based on the actual situation that you're currently in? And, and that is... You know, the to, to your point, um, you know, make sure you're doing things that are actually uplifting humanity. Start with that. And it doesn't matter what letter you have after your name. If you do that, I think we're going to be we're going to be better off. And, and I think that um, your generation and the generation younger than you are going to ultimately be demanding that and expecting that from their elected officials. So despite look, things are going to get worse before they get better. But I still believe that our best days are, are still ahead of us, and 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 that's what makes me excited, and that's why I'm still able to have um, that PMA, that positive mental, <laughs> mental attitude. My dad told me about. Uh, Will that that's really the, a perfect place to close this this really enlightening discussion and our uh, discussion of your book, American Reboot, which I hope everyone will read. Uh, you brought together both Ronald Reagan and Franklin Roosevelt. There, it's morning in America for you, Ronald Reagan, and there's another chapter in our democracy to be written. Uh, that's Franklin Roosevelt, and b- both of these are embodied in your book and your career. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us for this discussion, Will. I appreciate you. And Zachary, thank you for your poem, as always. Thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.